Hey, all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon-to-be-announced store. Your donations will also be tax-deductible as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now on with the show. So our redemption is not a happenstance. Uh, it's not an accident. Mm. It's the result of the deliberate outworking and execution of something on which the persons of the Holy Trinity had agreed from all eternity. It means the Father loved his people, the elect, in the Son from all eternity. The Son loved those people whom the Father gave to him from all eternity and uh, was determined to come and accomplish their redemption. And the Spirit loved those people and um, was pledged to apply to them the work of the Son. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss core doctrines of our confessional traditions with seminary and college professors, seasoned pastors, and more. These seasonal episodes exist to reach those outside the church, those in the pews, behind pulpits, and in the academy with rich truths of Reformed theology, and remind ourselves weekly how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. We have a repeat guest on today, our good friend, Dr. R. Scott Clark, and he's going to be helping us understand the covenant of redemption. And as you guys know, for season six, the introduction to Reformed theology, we're having all our guests are associated with, with Westminster Seminary, California. So Peter will go into that a little bit more when he introduces Dr. Clark, a familiar voice to our show. We're always very grateful for him. And he's also got the uh, Heidelcast. I wish I had the little cowbell right now. This would be a good time to do it. Oh, I didn't hear it. <laughs> He was shaking it. Um, anyway, if you go to the show notes, you'll see information about Dr. Clark, how to find him, his show, his blog, all his Heidel stuff. And then obviously Westminster Seminary, California, uh, where Peter graduated from, where Dr. Clark is a professor at, and where I am greatly influenced by. So 
I uh, hope you guys check that stuff out. And then um, also information about Lagos Bible Software, our main bridge builder sponsor. So thank you to Lagos. And then any other information on how to contact Peter, myself, Twitter, Instagram, and email, and YouTube. These conversations are on YouTube now. So um, you can, if that's a better platform for you guys, please subscribe to us and watch these these uh, conversations on YouTube. So without further ado, I'll let Peter further further introduce Dr. R. Scott Clark again. Yep. If you guys have seen, I think we've had him on for five or six episodes before, but if you've not heard him on our show, Dr. R. Scott Clark is professor of church history and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of a bunch of articles, a few books. He also runs the Heidel blog and the Heidelcast, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that stuff as well today, but it's a pleasure having you on as our repeat guest, Dr. Clark. Hi, guys. It's great to be with you. This will be this will be fun. So those who don't know you, we'll get to, to other questions as well, more kind of appropriate for season six. But for those who haven't heard you before, haven't mm-hmm. heard your name, if they're not on social media, if they lived under a rock for the last few years, uh, <laughs> let our listeners know a little about yourself um, and your background. Well, I as you say, I teach at Westminster Seminary, California. And I do all the Heidel stuff, heidelblog.net, Heidelcast, and all that uh, with the uh, help of a, of a, a few people, uh, wonderful folks that, that are that are helping to get all that together and out every day. Um, I've been at Westminster since 19, as a teacher since 1997. I was a student from 84 to 87. Uh, I've served as a pastor in Kansas City and um, in Oceanside and in Escondido. Uh, and so I've been a pastor. I, w- I started as an assistant pastor before I was ordained in, uh, so that was 1987, ordained in 1988. Uh, I have a wife and two children, um, uh, grown children, and, and a grown wife. Unfortunately, <laughs> 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 uh, you do have to, yeah, we have to make that pretty clear for people. Have to, have to today. stipulate all that stuff now, yes. Um, but yeah, my pronouns are the normal pronouns. <laughs> yes. Um, my wife is female. Yes. Uh, male. I don't know. Um, what uh, What other clarifications do I? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll make. We'll make. Uh, and you're for, also. For, uh, you're all. You're a husker too. You're. Yeah. I, you're I am a husker. I I was. Um, yes. Spent most of my youth in uh, the glorious state of Nebraska. So I was born on the plains, born in Kansas, raised mostly in Nebraska and um, grew up a Husker fan. So that's, that's sort of what happens to you when you live in Nebraska. It's... <laughs> that's, yeah. My condolences are with you for the last few seasons. Oh, so you're last few seasons. Yeah. Last 20 seasons. Most of it. <laughs> Basically since the nineties, the Huskers have not done much. <clears throat> Correct. Yeah. We, we were, de- we were pretty good in 2001 and, yeah. and uh, <laughs> we were, had we just a smidgen of offense in 2009, 2010, we actually uh, could have contended. We had the That's best right. defense in America in 2009. So yep. we had yep. yeah. too, who terrorized. I, I still remember. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Texas quarterback, uh, by the third quarter, he did not want to come to the line of scrimmage anymore. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you could see. I mean, through the, you know, the, you could see through the face mask, you could see the fear in his eyes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The last time, I mean, I was, I was a little young in at this time, but last time I recall Nebraska being good is a former center fielder for the angels. Darren Erstad yeah. played, 
was yeah. kicker for the Huskers yeah, he back was in the punter. 90s when they won the championship. Back in the 90s. So that's, that's the last time I know that they were good. He yeah. played on the baseball team and yep. uh, number one overall draft with the Angels. Yeah, that's the last time, which is which is saying quite a bit because that was a while ago. It's a while ago. They they had some good teams in the nineties. I was going to ask too. They obviously, great that's your, the they had great yeah. teams in the seventies to the nineties, and then just kind of stunk it up after that. Yeah. No. Um, I like. Yeah, I've always liked their helmet with the just the plain red N. You Very know, as my school. my first name being Nick, it's them and like kind of the um yeah crimson tie. They're just kind of old school jerseys, old school hat, all that stuff. Penn State, yeah. Yep, Penn State. That's very, true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very so traditional, very old school. So your college team is obviously Nebraska. So what about living in Southern California for a number of years? Who are your and you were in Kansas City for a while? Uh, who are your favorite professional sports teams, if you have any? I don't. I'm from Nebraska. We really don't care that much about professional. <laughs> there's no baseball. There's no basketball. Really, it's just football. When I was a kid, I was a big fan of the NBA. So we we have okay. Kansas City Omaha Kings. And, uh, oh, they went to Sacramento. So they were in Cincinnati. Then they then they came to uh, Kansas City and Omaha. So we had season tickets when I was a kid, and I saw I saw the Kings quite a bit. You won't remember this player, but uh, Nate Archibald okay. is a Hall of Fame hmm. uh, point guard. And uh, w- one of the, he actually led the league in scoring in 19, oh boy, 73, maybe 74, something like that. And huh. He was about, he was six foot barely. Uh, so he, he, he was amazing. And, um, and it was a bad team. Uh, there were actually, some of those guys went on to coach and to be uh, fairly successful that way. Huh. But, but huh. Uh, anyway, they, uh, so yeah, I was a, I was a big NBA fan when I was a kid and I was I always been a college basketball fan, but um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nebraska was never a particularly, and still is not a very good basketball team, yeah. but um, I worked for the Creighton Blue Jays for a number of years. Yeah. They, they were yeah. not as famous and as successful as they are today. Yeah. But um, so yeah. I've been the baseball and basketball teams aren't too bad over there. Uh, no, baseball at least at Creighton. Been good. Uh, yeah, the baseball team has been good, and the basketball team, um, uh, at least last year for some of the year, was in the top ten and ended yeah, up yeah. really well in the in the tournament. So, yeah, yeah, my experience with Creighton basketball goes back to the uh, Eddie Sutton and Tom Apke days. Okay. So mm-hmm. that um, no, listeners probably won't. Uh, very few listeners will get that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Eddie Sutton was a very successful uh, basketball coach. And um, and um, actually, so was Tom Hapke. Anyway, so yeah, it, it uh, uh, um, so I was never really a big you know NFL fan. Obviously, you know, a football fan, and yeah. uh, sort of vaguely pay attention to it. But since 1987, my Sundays have been rather busy. That's that's right. Yeah, you've been ministering. Yeah, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and so. As Nick has already said, and we'll have this is a two parter because um, even though this will come after a few other professors' episodes, you're the first one we're interviewing, recording wise. Um, so, first question we're going to ask uh, all guests in the season are either current West Cal faculty or and or Westminster alumni. And you happen to be both. So, talk about your Westminster student days. How did you find Westminster? What was education like, and how has it provided? the foundation both academically and ministerially for you? I got to Westminster, California through uh, Chuck Hill, Charles E. Hill, yep. who yep. just retired uh, after a long career at uh, RTS Orlando. Chuck and I were at St. John's Reformed Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. There were a bunch of uh, college students 
all became interested in Reformed theology about the same time, and I sort of came in at the tail end of that. Um, probably I, I ended up over there about 1980, and then I was away, uh, 81, and I was away for a few months, came back. Anyway, so from about 1980 um, until my graduation in 84, uh, I was at St. John's Reformed, and there was a, a really strong college group. Now, I don't know if RUF hmm. existed yet, but we had a, a college group at this little Reformed church, on the, uh, literally on the wrong side of the tracks, in the north of campus, uh, down in what's called the Russian Bottoms. And uh, <laughs> Chuck was there, and uh, Alan Mallory, who was an old and dear friend, who was a longtime PCA pastor. We were all excuse me, we were all together at uh, St. John's and um, a bunch of, bunch of other folks. And um, Chuck went off to Westminster Seminary, California. And at that time, uh, the only faculty member I knew uh, was Jay Adams, who was the director of the D-Min program back then. Mm -hmm. And um, and I knew Chuck and Chuck uh, was a couple of years ahead of me. And so he came out and, and came back and told us how much he enjoyed seminary and how much he uh, you know, was impressed with the faculty. And so um, Alan and I uh, packed up and um, he was, he lived out in the Sand Hills and I lived in Lincoln and uh, we, we drove out uh, separately, uh, but uh, started seminary in 1984. And um, then I found out, I found out about uh, Meredith Klein and mm -hmm. all the rest of the uh, Bob Strimple and Bob Godfrey. And, um, and um, so I, uh, yeah, I was here for, uh, for three years. And uh, back then, the MDiv was hard. <laughs> that's my memory. Uh, I, I was like, wait a second. It was hard when I was there, too. <laughs> actually, they, they, the, the accreditors actually made us, uh, between the time I graduated and the time I came back, the accreditors actually made us uh, lower our, our standards and somewhat to lessen the workload. Huh. That's, a, that's a true story. So, yeah, all you guys, since 19, uh, whenever they did that, uh, you're all a bunch of sissies. <laughs> so we had to, um, I think Christian Mind was like uh, 10 hours or something. I don't know what it was. It was, oh my gosh. It, it was I think it might've been five hours. Anyway, we, we met a lot. I had a lot wow. of, uh, I had John Frame uh, for Christian Mind. So uh, we spent a lot of time with Professor Frame. Uh, and uh, it was great. I mean, uh, listening to Meredith Klein, um, was uh, kind of a revelation. I had some really good profs in college at the University mm -hmm. of Nebraska, uh, yeah. out, out of the many, and um, some some really good classes. But uh, Klein was, um, uh, you know, a, a, an amazing lecturer. Oh, yeah, that's what I've heard. Yep. Extraordinarily gifted. And, you know, whatever uh, people uh, think of his conclusions on various topics, uh, he was extraordinarily uh, well-read, uh, and learned, and um, and really, in, in in his own way, it was a different time, a different place. Uh, professors didn't have to put up with with as much nonsense as we have to put up with today. Mm, yeah. uh, we, it didn't have to be quite as indulgent or as concerned about students' feelings as <laughs> as we do today. And so, uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Meredith would put up with a little, uh, you know, uh, pushback from students. There was, there was always a King James only guy who knew everything, you know. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, couldn't be taught, and Meredith would tolerate that for a, a minute or two, and then he would make the student regret uh, speaking <laughs> up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that yep. was a lot of fun. He, uh, he Meredith had three hums. He would start to make a case, and then as he got partway through his case, he'd say hmm, and then as he got further through his case, he'd say hmm hmm, and then when he got to the end of his case, he would say hmm hmm hmm, and then you were done. 
then he knew you're done. (laughs) Got to the third, he knew that he had you cornered and you didn't have any way out. (laughs) I love it. I remember uh, one of my fondest memories, I guess. This might sound strange, um, but uh, was writing a final exam for Meredith on. Mm -hmm. I've heard about these. On the the role of uh, Abraham in in the history of redemption, uh, how all of. That was really where I began to to think about Abraham as the paradigm for the covenant of grace. Yep, yeah. the unity of the covenant of grace was um, was uh, Meredith. But so seminary was a great experience. It was challenging. Um, I had worked actually all through college, and so it had take it took me five years to do four, and um, <laughs> I, I was behind uh, as I came into my senior year. So I took forty credits my senior year. Whoa! Oh, I did. I got straight A's. I worked like a maniac. I was doing wow. uh, Homer. I was translating Homer and and learning Latin and uh, just taking a ton of credits. Um, but you know, uh, Barbara taught me how to study actually, and I had a prof that actually explained how to to study, how to be successful. He said, "Spend ten hours, memorize these formula, and you'll your formula, and you'll get an A." Yeah, wow. that's sort of a breakthrough for me. And so I started doing I started doing that, and I started getting A's, uh, and. Um, so by the time I got to seminary, I was a little bit tired, and I, I, I should have. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah, harder than I did, and I should, I could have done better than I did. But uh, I remember Bob Strimple, you know, holding his uh, Greek Testament in his left hand and a, a marker, a black marker for the overhead in his right hand, and or on the chalkboard, a piece of chalk, you know, uh, diagramming a passage and explaining, you know, what it implied and and how it fit together with other passages. Uh, you know, that's a strong memory. And Bob Godfrey, uh, obviously is a great storyteller and it really fueled in me a love for church history. So, uh, that was the early days. That was a, my class was the first class that I think was full time on the, what is now our campus Uh, prior to that, they had been in an office building in San Marcos. So uh, Hmm. I'm, and I'm now the, I'm not the oldest guy on the faculty, but I'm the guy who's been around uh, campus the longest now, which is amazing because when I came, I was the kid. Hmm. Now I'm the old guy. <laughs> that's that's right. So second second part of this question, and you've already kind of talked about this, is uh, we're going to ask all of current professors, and we have about two-thirds, three-quarters of the professors coming on for the season. Um, so we're going to assume we have prospective students or pastors who are talking to young men who are looking in the ministry or families who have young men who are looking in the ministry or those who have influence over prospective students. So why, why should they choose Westminster and be taught by you amongst other, other professors at Westminster? Well, there are a lot of great schools out there, uh, but I, I think Westminster is special. I think Westminster Seminary, California is special. I think we have a, a way of doing things that is, um, to, to a certain degree, unique. I mean, in some oh, ways, yeah. I think we've had uh, faculty or we've had graduates go out and go to uh, the other schools. And and there are, you know, uh, folks that, you know, have sort of gone back and forth. Um, so there's interchange, but uh, we've always had very high standards. Uh-huh. And I think that's a very important, particularly today when there's a lot of pressure to lower standards mm-hmm. and uh, to make things easier and, um, and, and that's uh, all the more as um, you know the Department of Education uh, presses down on all on everybody, all the institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it, it, that's just sort of the general trend of things. Uh, we have roots that to go back to old Princeton uh, mm -hmm. directly and through old Princeton to the great university uh, theology faculties in the Netherlands in the 17th century and um, in Germany in the 16th and, and 17th centuries and, and, uh, and behind them to the great universities in um, Europe, Oxford, uh, Paris, Cambridge, and so forth. So um, Heidelberg, uh, so we're connected to all that. And we, we feel that, uh, that weight to uh, continue to teach students, not only to know a little bit about Greek and Hebrew, but to actually learn their Greek and Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's vital um, because um, a lot of students are graduating from seminaries uh, and they're not actually learning Greek and Hebrew. No, they know how to use computer programs to look up Greek and Hebrew, but don't actually know how to read Greek and Hebrew. I I am a user of Logos, and it's great, uh, but it's no substitute for actually knowing the language. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to stand in the pulpit, now I'm speaking about ministerial students. We yep. we have about seventy percent of our students are MDiv. That means they're headed. Um, they're men headed for pastoral ministry, and then we have 30% of our students are master's students who are going to go off and do other things. So sometimes the MA students end up in pastoral ministry too, uh, but uh, uh, but the MDiv program is where you know where we're consciously preparing people for pastoral ministry. Yeah. And so if you're going to stand up in the pulpit and say, thus says the Lord, uh, you need to have read the text in the original language. You need to have worked through it. You need to have gotten a sense from the original language what the author is saying mm -hmm. and not relying on an English translation. And there are differences. Yep. Uh, I, you know, I'm uh, so on the Heidelcast, I'm going through the Book of Romans and I'm doing my own translation. And yep. uh, so I read the standard English translation, you know, but then, you know, when I'm explaining the text, I'm explaining it on the basis of my engagement with the original text. Mm -hmm. And it, it it is different. It does make a difference. It gives you some insight into the way an author thinks, the way an author speaks. You see connections between passages that you might not otherwise see. Um, and um, so it's not that you can't get the general gist of things from English translations, uh, uh, but we really believe and have always believed that the uh, the Word of God in the original languages uh, you know, and, and we've actually even said that in some of our confessional documents. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the thing that uh, norms the faith, ultimately. So uh, that's that's essential. And, and then, uh, listen, um, I, you know, just speaking for myself, I think of seminary as, as uh, something like uh, med school or law school. Mm -hmm. And so we, we believe in face-to-face uh, -face education. Mm -hmm. So we've always said face-to-face -face is best. And what we mean by that is uh, that, um, yes, you can transmit in information online. Um, you know, we did it uh, during COVID. Mm -hmm. But the students came to us and they said, listen, we don't really like this. No, online. it was the absolute worst thing I've ever done is online education. We want to be back face-to-face. -face. We don't feel like we're learning as much as we learned when we were face-to-face. -face. And so that was actually very encouraging to me because I was afraid that once we started doing that, people would say, oh, we like being able to show up to class in our PJs and um, so forth. And, and, you know, I can be wherever I need to be or want to be, and um, you can teach me and it'll all be fine. Um, no, they said, no, we want to be face-to-face. -face. And um, so we we are really committed to that. And th that's a difference. Um, you know, in some ways, it's not just the the stuff that goes on in class, as as important as that is. It's the conversations between class. Yeah. And it's going out to lunch, and it's a meeting in the office and meeting in the hallway, 
and um, you know, hanging out, uh, you know, at the at the Westminster Village down the hill, mm-hmm. uh, all of those things. Uh, those are all we could call those interstitial uh, parts of of the students' education, uh, where you know maybe we talk about. Uh, you know, what does this mean for the life of the pastor? What does this mean for the life of the congregation? What are some challenges a pastor is going to face, um, you know, when he takes a call and and uh, those sorts of things? And and uh, you can't cover all that stuff in class, but we do discuss that stuff, um, obviously, in class, and then we get to discuss it more fully, more completely outside of class. And when you're online, you just can't replicate that. It, it doesn't... Um, you know, uh, there were some advantages. I like the fact that all the students had name tags, basically. <laughs> Zoom, yeah, so that, that was great. And you but, can mute them whenever you wanted to. They couldn't I, talk. It, that was a benefit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember those. Yeah, I don't remember having to do that, but uh, but uh, I remember you having to do that very, uh, very, very clearly. Okay, and, uh, <laughs> it was. We remember we were hearing Dr. Clark saying, "You know what? I can like we knew you were joking. I was like, I can get used to this. I can just mute you and just talk." <laughs> oh my god this makes sense <laughs> so it uh so there was you know there there was that but um then when the screen went off boom they're gone yep and uh and so that that's a real difference and and uh, we've had a lot of pressure to you know expand uh, online offerings and um you know and, and we we could do that but we would lose something that we think is really important so we're yep. holding the line and um and you know, standing up for for standards um, and and for face to face education, um, and we're taking the confession seriously. You know, it's one thing to say, "Well, we believe this the, the Reformed confessions." It's another thing to do as we do require students to take a course in the confessions mm-hmm. and to integrate the confessions into the courses, um, so that they're not just uh, documents. Uh, they're not just regarded as doctrinal summaries, but they're regarded as the church's confession of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ecclesiastical assemblies, the Westminster Divines, and then adopted by the American Presbyterians, uh, the Belgian Confession, adopted by the Dutch churches, uh, the Canons of Dort, adopted by the Dutch churches, and, and so forth. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism, adopted by lots and lots of churches. Uh, th- these are not just doctrinal summaries. These are the churches. Uh, considered prayerful interpretation of the Word of God and um, an application of the Word of God. So we account for that in our classes and and uh, in our teaching and in our discussions, so that it's woven in, right? So we're we're doing both things. We're reading the Word of God in the original languages. Uh, we're doing systematic theology. We're doing biblical theology. We're doing practical theology, but we're doing it in. Um, conjunction with and dialogue with in light of uh, informed by uh, the confession of the churches and i just think that's very very valuable oh, it's yeah. profound really and uh, um that's just not something that a student's going to get everywhere else no right we're not um we're a lot of schools are cafeterias mm-hmm. and so you um, you go through and you pick this and you mm-hmm. pick that and I'll be very uh, frank here. Uh, putting people who don't know anything in charge of their own education is a bad. <laughs> yeah, you pick your courses based off what you want to learn. Yeah, it's not a good idea if you don't know what you need to learn. That's exactly right. And so we have prospective students, and they come uh, from all kinds of backgrounds and from all over the globe, uh, language groups, uh, you know, all kind, all kinds of uh, language groups, and uh, it's 
always great to uh, you know meet with prospective students and, and hear their questions. Uh, but what's interesting to me is uh, to contrast the kinds of questions that students are asking in their prospective student meetings uh, with the kinds of questions they're asking two or three years into their education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're completely different. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, and it's because uh, their uh, thinking and their understanding has been revolutionized mm-hmm. by engaging with scripture in the original languages and and deeply and seriously and engaging with uh, the most important literature in, in the history of the Christian tradition, at least some of it, and uh, engaging with uh, the most important uh, contemporary uh, literature. Um, so... Uh, um, when students start their education, most of the time, uh, they don't know even exactly what the questions are. So then to put them in charge of, you know, to leave them to choose their own curriculum uh, or to attend a seminary where, you know, this prof is an Arminian and this prof, this prof is a, a Calvinist, whatever somebody means by that. And uh, this prof is a, a Lutheran and this mm-hmm. prof is a Baptist, uh, you know, the cafeteria approach to education. There is some value in that, but what I've seen over the years, and I've you know been at this now for 25, 26 years, and I taught at the undergraduate level for a couple of years before I came here, and um, what I've seen uh, in the difference I see is that uh, you have students who are um, well-informed about the range of opinions, mm-hmm. but they themselves end up somewhat latitudinarian and and, uh, without settled convictions on some of the most important questions in the faith. Yep. And uh, that seems like a a poor stance from which to do pastoral ministry. Mm. So I'm I'm not saying that there isn't any value in that. Sure. uh, We we certainly do uh, do our very best uh, to expose students to a wide, a wide variety, a wide range of points of view, and we're duty-bound by the moral law and by conviction to represent the various points of view as accurately as we can so that we can engage them well, carefully, thoroughly, and so forth. So it's not as if students won't be engaging those things, but they'll be engaging them from a particular uh, a confession Remember to a particular tradition. And um, so I think there's a lot of value. And even those students who graduate not agreeing with us yeah. said many times that they're glad that they went to a school that actually uh, believes. <laughs> believes something. <laughs> and and, and, uh, st- and stands for something. A school that has convictions, that's gracious about their convictions, but that actually has convictions. Um, and I guess the last thing I'd say is that, uh, you know, uh, there's a, I, I think my sense is, my impression is that uh, there's a, a, a desire among particularly, to some degree, millennials, um, but uh, uh, Zoomers, right, Gen Z folks, uh, to say, well, you know, we need to fix this world mm-hmm. now. And, uh, and I, I get that. This is not the first time that we've been through this. We went through it in the 1920s, actually. So it's uh, a, a century ago. We went through this after World War I. And so here we are sort of after the war on terror. And you have, we're having a similar uh, period of, of reaction mm. and uh, concern for injustice and all those things, which are valuable. Uh, but the kingdom of God is transcendent. It's mm-hmm. eternal. And, um, and people are going to die. 
So you can fix this world, but people are going to die, and then what? And uh, and and uh, you can you can fix this world, but that doesn't change people's hearts. And uh, mm. so uh, I, I would really encourage young people to uh, think beyond the concerns of the immediate. And they shouldn't think that they're the first ones to say, you know, we've been at war. It, this is all terrible. Uh, there, There's all this injustice in the world. We need to fix it. Um, I don't mean to sound cynical, um, but the world has not fundamentally changed uh, that much no. <laughs> since the fall. No. And the truth is, uh, not to say that you can't make some difference, but if you really want to make a difference, uh, then you ought to be announcing the law and the gospel, which God the Holy Spirit uses to uh, convict his elect of the greatness of their sin and misery, and the gospel by which he uh, redeems his people and, and sets them free. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's, uh, you know, that's the most important, most profound, most transformative message um, that a a man can announce to the world, or that a, a woman can teach in a Bible study, or in a college, or you know, in, in any number of settings, or on the mission field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Where's your Where's your Heidel bell? I I didn't hear it before. Oh, I can't hear it. It's too oh. far away from the mic. <laughs> I still can't hear it. Anyway, really? Like, yeah. I couldn't Peter? Can you hear it? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway. That's amazing because it's it's plenty loud. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, no, yeah, it's a good point because if you went into an operation, if you needed surgery, you yeah. would want a doctor that went to medical school. <clears throat> and how much more important is is our souls? So you want soul doctors. You know, you want people that are trained that know the Bible well. Mm-hmm. They're going to yeah, help that, you. Yeah, Nick, that is so important. That's exactly. Right. Um, you know, if you went to a, if you walked into a doctor's office and uh, on their wall, instead of Stanford medical uh, was such and such online medical school. <laughs> yeah. You'd be a little, a little scared. They, they were proposing to do cancer surgery yeah. or something, heart surgery. You'd think, ah, uh, I, I, you know, it's nice to meet you, doc. I think I'm going to get a second opinion. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm sure you have good intentions, but I'm not really sure I want you operating on my body. That's right. You wouldn't exactly. And uh, I, so that's my argument uh, that yeah. uh, if, uh, as you say, handling the word of God, you know, is, is so important. Every, every patient until Jesus comes, every patient of every physician is going to die. Mm-hmm. Right? They can help, but they can't keep you from dying ultimately. And, um, you know, so if that's the case, uh, life and death is the most important thing that we can talk about. And that's what ministry is. It's talking about ultimately life and death. And um, it, and we have the most important and the most wonderful news to announce ever. Mm-hmm. A doc can say, well, you're in remission. And, uh, and we can say with authority, with divine authority, your sins are forgiven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are two very different messages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. 
If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to an admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So getting into the kind of the the meat of this conversation, I wish I could hear the Heidelbell because this would be a perfect time to kind of <laughs> hear it, to know that we're transitioning into the part of the, the, the meat of this episode where we're talking about the covenant of redemption. <laughs> so pretty easy question to let you kind of go, go into, into depths with what is the covenant of redemption what role do the persons of the triune Godhead have in this covenant? Uh, that's a great question, and uh, it's, it's, I think it's important to to uh, give a definition. What are we talking about? Um, because this um, doctrine of the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis or concilium pacis is the um, older way of putting it, but uh, pactum salutis, the, the, um, the, the covenant of salvation between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit— uh, is something that was more or less lost in Reformed theology. And, and, and for a long time in the 20th century, you couldn't find anybody teaching the mm-hmm. covenant of redemption. So uh, I, uh, Dave Van Drunen and I wrote a chapter on this. Uh, the title of the chapter was The Covenant Before the Covenants. Mm-hmm. It's in a volume uh, entitled Covenant Justification and Pastoral Ministry, which is out of print. Uh, I think you can still get an e-copy uh, via Apple Books, and uh, we will. Uh, at the, the Heidelberg Reformation Association is actually working on a way. Uh, we have the rights now to this volume. We're working on a way to get this into people's hands. Uh, we haven't figured out exactly everything, but we know we're working on it. And um, and in that chapter, uh, Dave and I wrote the following definition: In Reformed theology, the pactum salutis has been defined as a pre-temporal, which means before time intra-Trinitarian, not inter-Trinitarian. I hear people saying that sometimes. That would be between trinities, and and that would be another religion. (laughs) Yeah, right. Intra-Trinitarian, that is within the Trinity, agreement between the Father and Son, in which the Father promises to redeem and elect people. And so most Reformed people most of the time have said that the elect are so, they are elect in Christ from all eternity. And so the the uh, intra-Trinitarian agreement between the Father and Son, the Father promises to redeem and elect people, 
Uh, and in turn, the Son volunteers to earn the salvation of the people whom the Father has given him by becoming incarnate, right? the Spirit having prepared a body for him, uh, by acting, and here are, are the key terms, and, uh, and they're key because uh, they help us see the covenant of redemption in Scripture. And one of those key terms is surety, um, right? enguus, uh, sponsor in Latin. There are a couple of other Latin terms, fide justor and ex promisor. But uh, surety is the English word that we use, and, and it's a New Testament word. And uh, a surety is somebody who, who uh, guarantees a pledge. So the Son is the surety uh, of the covenant of grace for uh, and as mediator of the covenant of grace to the elect, and in his passive uh, and active obedience, or his actively passive obedience, uh, that is actively suffering obedience, Christ fulfills the conditions of the covenant of redemption and fulfills his guarantee. You know, the technical word is sponsio, one of the words, there are a couple of other words, uh, ratifying the Father's promise, because of which the Father rewards the Son's obedience with the salvation of the elect. And because of this, the Holy Spirit applies the Son's work to His people through the means of grace. So the short way of putting this is the covenant of redemption was a covenant made between the Father and the Son, and implicitly the Holy Spirit, in which the Father gives a people to the Son, and the Son promises to be their Redeemer and their Mediator, and He accomplishes that in time, and the Spirit applies His work to those whom the Father has given the Son. It's a covenant of works for the Son and the covenant of grace for us. So it's the background to the two historical covenants that we talk about, the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the garden. Uh, right? Negatively, the day you eat thereof, you, sure, sure, you shall surely die, or positively uh, pass this test and, and, and enter into eternal blessedness. And the covenant of grace you see expressed in, in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman uh, will uh, strike the, the serpent, and the serpent will strike his heel. And, um, and so th those are the three covenants that uh, make up, at least came to make up, Reformed covenant theology. Beautiful. Yeah, and that kind of leads into my next question, which um, what you're saying the three persons of the triune Godhead were in complete 100% agreement. I mean, they're the Trinity is never disagreeing with themselves. So it's not that the, the, the father was planning something and Jesus was kicking and screaming and, and didn't want to do it. And it's not child. <laughs> it's not cosmic child abuse. It is full on Jesus volunteering and God father agreeing with it. And they both were on the same page the whole time. Well, that's right. Um, so God has, the Trinity has one will. There are three persons, but one will. And uh, they all willed the salvation of the elect. And um, so, and the Son, uh, as we understand Scripture, we can look at some important passages. I, I like to look at uh, the Old Testament, Psalm 110, mm -hmm. and then in the New Testament, John 17, so we can look at those uh, whenever it's convenient. Uh, but uh we see in Scripture uh, this uh, agreement, a voluntary agreement between the, the persons of the Trinity. So one God, three persons, one will, uh, three distinct persons. And these persons um, 
as you say, um, are voluntary, vo volunteering uh, to do this thing, to enter into this arrangement. And one of the v values or one of the virtues or benefits of this uh, doctrine of the covenant redemption is uh, that it not only unifies all of Scripture, gives a framework for understanding the covenants of works and, and grace, right? because as I say, it's a pactum salutis, covenant of redemption is works for the Son and, and grace for us. Um, so it grounds the covenants of grace and works in this pretemporal arrangement. Um, but it, it also explains a lot of Scripture, and um, it helps. It gives us a way of, of understanding why certain things are said the way they're said and, and what they mean. And it means, then, that our redemption is grounded in promises uh, made between the persons of the Trinity— uh, from all eternity. So our redemption is not a happenstance. Uh, it's not an accident. Mm. It's the result of the deliberate outworking and execution of something on which the persons of the Holy Trinity had agreed from all eternity. It means the Father loved his people, the elect, in the Son from all eternity. The Son loved those people whom the Father gave to him from all eternity, and uh, was determined to come and accomplish their redemption. And the Spirit loved those people and um, was pledged to apply to them the work of the Son mm. and the love of God. Mm -hmm. And there's there's always been some aberrant views surrounding the relation between the Father and the Son, particularly those surrounding eternal sub subordination of the Son and eternal relations of the authority and submission. Uh, can you describe these heresies, and how would you correct them? Well, um, EFS and ERAS you know, and um, whatever else, uh, uh, ESS, uh, so eternal functional subordination, eternal subordination of the Son, and eternal relations of authority and submission. Uh, these are all uh, modern formulations from uh, fundamentalists for the most part, mostly Baptists, some Presbyterians and Reformed folk mm -hmm. uh, got sucked into this. And, and much to my shame, I got sucked into this. Mm. Um, you know, back in the 80s, because uh, I, I wasn't, frankly, as well grounded in, for example, the ecumenical creeds mm -hmm. as, uh, as I should have been. And uh, that was my fault. Uh, I should have paid attention to the Nicene Creed, and I, I should have uh, noticed some of the inherent weaknesses in the way these things are being formulated. And they, they came about because people were trying to find a remedy to uh, feminism as they were encountering it in the in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And so they said, look, uh, you know, females can uh, submit and must submit to males. And the different folks have said different things. You know, John Piper and uh, John MacArthur think that all females should be in submission to all males, mm -hmm. uh, which would be a surprise to both me and my wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think my, I mean, obviously my wife owes respect to, to the postman in as much as um, he is a, a representative of the government and fulfilling an official function. Um, but, um, you know, there's this a silly uh, uh, discussion about whether um, a, a, a man can get directions from a woman without yep. submitting to her. Yep. And that's just bizarre. I'm sorry. Uh, it has, that has nothing to do with, with Scripture, um, and, and nor does it have anything to do with historic Christianity. But th so this is a cultural reaction looking for a biblical 
um, foundation or a theological foundation. It's not a biblical foundation, really. It's a theological foundation. And so they fabricate this doctrine of eternal submission in various ways. And uh, eternal submission is said to be, um, you know, they, they, uh, they, they say they're denying any ontological subordination. And so they deny being um, Arians. Uh, the problem is, though, they have taken texts that are talking, for example, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 1 mm -hmm. and following, mm -hmm. taken those texts, uh, which are talking about the submission of the incarnate Son, mm -hmm. and they read that back into the eternal relations yeah. between the Father and the Son. And so they've made some very significant, I think, exegetical mistakes, theological mistakes. And um, I know uh, for my part, uh, you know, I hadn't given it much thought for a number of years. I sort of had my head pretty firmly planted in the 16th century. And when I was teaching at Wheaton, um, one of the guys on faculty was a fairly well-known uh, evangelical feminist. And he popped into my office. And I really don't remember the, the circumstances or how this came about. And he started uh, remonstrating with me, even yelling a little bit about how eternal subordination was uh, anti-Nicene and so forth. And and um, and so, uh, as it turns out, when I finally did look into these things, mm -hmm. he was right. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and, and uh, I had, uh, you know, been led down the garden path. You know, it was a big, fat paperback that, that I had, uh, that I had read. I had not read all of it, but I had read uh, chunks of it. Uh, biblical manhood and womanhood. Yep, that was our like foundational text of Biola. We had to read that backwards and forwards. Okay, um, well, I I can't say that I did that, but I I had some friends who had contributed yeah. to it. And, and, I'm uh, unfortunately well versed in that book. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Peter. It, uh, it so um, you know uh, through the course of teaching on the early church fathers. And lecturing on them and teaching through and reading through a medieval theology with my students and then Reformation and post-Reformation theology. And the better I got to know our own tradition, I realized that uh, this way of speaking is, you know, ERS, ERAS, uh, ESS, EFS, these are all incompatible with uh, historic ecumenical Christian theology. Mm -hmm. you, you really don't want to use the word submission and son together, uh, uh, you know, just that combination should have set off alarm bells for everyone. Uh, and I think uh, that what was true of me was also true of them, that uh, where I, I was in a context where I could have been expected to have been more Nicene in my theology, so again, shame on me, uh, those guys, for the most part, are Baptist, fundamentalist, Pentecostal guys who are not in a context where they could really be expected to be Nicene in their theology. Now, these are not traditions where the Nicene Creed is valued, where it's recited, mm -hmm. where it's part of catechesis. Uh, so these are folks who come from a tradition where they're, you know, uh, certainly in the case of Wayne Grudem, where there's as much emphasis on what you receive, uh, learn from, you know, what, what messages you receive from God outside of Holy Scripture as there is, from inside of Holy mm -hmm. Scripture. And, you know, in Grudem's case, uh, he argues that you can receive fallible uh, revelations from the Holy Spirit, which is also an extraordinary thing to say. Um, and and as I come, <laughs> as I came to figure out, entirely wrong and uh, not implausible and entirely wrong, resting on a, a really uh, tenuous exegetical basis. So um, that that's where all that comes from. And 
what we're talking about here in 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 a way the, the pactum salutis is the remedy for this mm-hmm. yeah. because the the son is not in his being subordinate to the father that'd be heresy against the ecumenical faith uh, they're coessential coeternal you know very god a very god uh, begotten not made uh, that's the other thing that uh, that you know because of our biblicism our i say you know uh, evangelical reformed biblicism of the 70s and 80s people were calling into question uh, the eternal begottenness of the son mm-hmm. <laughs> another problem highly problematic because that, that too is confessed in the nicene creed um, so what we want to do is be Nicene Christians. I don't think it's too much to expect people to be ecumenical, to be Catholic in the best sense of those words, lowercase e, lowercase c, universal Christians. This is the universal ecumenical Christian biblical faith uh, confessed by all Christians in all times and in all places. And um, and so that should be a starting point. And uh, fixing feminism isn't a rationale for revising ecumenical Christianity. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so when you look at the Pactum Salutis, you have three co-essential, co-eternal, distinct persons entering into a, um, a an agreement, a covenant, um, in which the, the Son will take on humanity, mm-hmm. and having taken on humanity, as Paul says in Philippians 2, uh, will pour himself out, not pouring out his deity, that's kenosis, um, but it's a figure of speech. Uh, he will make himself, as Bob Strimple explained to us, a, a drink offering, an, an Old Testament drink offering. And um, and he didn't consider equality with God something to be uh, grasped. He's not uh, like Adam, trying to become God. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is uh, the God-man who, for our sakes, is obeying the law of God on our behalf, uh, satisfying the wrath of God for us, and uh, accomplishing our redemption, accomplishing our righteousness, all of which is credited to all of those who believe. And so we can talk about uh, Jesus being in submission to the Father inasmuch as he's uh, humiliated himself by becoming a true man, born of the Virgin, taking his humanity uh, by the mysterious operation of the Holy Spirit uh, from the Blessed Virgin, and um, and, and then accomplishing our, our redemption in fulfillment of the agreement, the covenant he made with his father. Mm-hmm. Yep. And just a layperson uh, clarification for me to make sure I got it right too. Um, so these anti-Nicene uh, kind of heresies with the the eternal subordination and submission um, views are whether accidental or not are seeing Jesus's divinity less than the father. Well, and... they deny that. So I don't want to put words in their mouth. Okay. So I, I uh, but it's highly problematic to talk about submission of the mm-hmm. son from all eternity to the father in the person of the son, or that is uh, considered uh, apart from the incarnation. Now considered uh, in light of the incarnation, that's another thing. Mm-hmm. That's what Paul does in first Corinthians 11. And so, uh, all you know, I'll maybe someone would would be willing to say this, uh, to say what you said, but um, I would simply say that uh, what they've constructed is a sub Nicene Christology. Okay. I, I, whether it's anti Nicene, you know, I think that's probably an ecclesiastical judgment, um, and that's probably something. Again, I think you know the Reformed churches 
um, or, you know, maybe we have to do it individually. I don't think we're going to get do it corporately, but uh, we need to uh, gather together and confess against this sort of thing mm-hmm. because it is sub-Nicene. And um, it, it's not, you, you, one cannot reconcile um, the, uh, the animus, the spirit of, uh, or the, the language, certainly, of those movements, EFS, ESS, ERAS, with uh, Nicene theology or uh, with the uh, Athanasian Creed, which in some ways is the culmination. Oh, yeah. Yep. I was about to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's maybe to help out the, the lay people, too, and, and help out. Next question, maybe ground it a little bit as well. It's And you'll hear, and again, it's modern debates, and I'm sure it's been happening for years and years and years, but like they'll split the wills between the father and the son. Right. So the father has his will, so he's authoritative, and the son has a separate will, and he's submitting to this instead of seeing they have the same will as two distinct persons when uh, both are in complete agreement with the um, plan of redemption, not the father says one thing and the, said, the son says another thing. They both are in complete um, unified will in their redemptive plan. And in their creational plan and, and yeah. in their providential plan. So yeah. we, we talk about two wills in Jesus yeah. because he has yeah. two distinct two natures. natures. Yep. One person, two natures. But in the Trinity, we say one God, three distinct persons. Exactly. And, yeah. and all we mean by that is that the uh, there are properties that belong to the Son. He's eternally begotten. The Father is unbegotten. The Spirit uh, proceeds, if you're uh, Western, from the Father and the Son eternally, but certainly proceeds eternally. And so procession belongs to the Spirit, begottenness belongs to the mm. Son, and unbegottenness belongs to the Father. And yep. uh, so they're three distinct persons, but they have one will. And so th- this is where mm. the Athanasian Creed, uh, for example, I find so helpful. When I taught the doctrine of God uh, at, at Westminster for several years, I used to tell the students that Everything I learned about the Trinity, I learned from the Athanasian Creed. Yeah, it's so and, helpful. Yeah, it's true. They, I, I don't think they believe me, but no. it, I said, go meditate on the Athanasian Creed. For example, the seventh article uh, says, or sixth article, but the deity of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such as the Son and such is the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And we go on. Mm-hmm. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, the Holy Spirit uncreate. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Spirit incomprehensible, and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it would, uh, so every lay Christian can uh, get a copy of the Athanasian Creed. Uh, for example, go to heidelblog.net slash creeds, heidelblog.net slash creeds. And I've got there for you, um, you know, the original texts and uh, English translations of the various ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Athanasian Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, they're all there and, um, and meditate on those things and uh, they will protect you, which is what they're intended to do, by the way, mm-hmm. from... Uh, well-meaning mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Arius, who was the heretic uh, that the, to whom the council was uh, replying at Nicaea, he said he's just following the Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They always say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and my response is, well, we read the Bible too. We who are Orthodox, and um, and you're wrong. And here is why you are wrong. Mm-hmm. And we reject your your uh, teaching, your errors, and. Uh, 
So uh, we, we should say the same thing in in the same uh, in a similar spirit to you know revolutionaries or or, or novel formulations like EFS, ESS, and ERES, uh, all misguided and um, and not uh, of the same spirit really as the as the ecumenical creeds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you're saying, un- understanding those two natures of Christ is crucial for helping flush this out in context of of passages scripture what jesus is saying understanding the two natures of christ his fully god and fully man and sometimes when he's speaking in scripture he's speaking from his human nature and he's always fully god uh, yeah true i uh, yeah uh, and i know what you mean i would prefer and it's what i what i encourage the students to do is to talk the way we do in our creeds and confessions and most of the time we use the adjective true true god true man so that we don't fall even into quantitative mm-hmm. language where we might be implying that we're we're measuring I, but i i'm affirming what you're saying that uh, that is exactly right and so the uh, uh, now we want to be careful as we look at the gospels for example and and trying to because you could fall into nestorianism here yeah split hairs between the natures mm-hmm. or, or divide the two natures and so you, you you want to distinguish without dividing. And so we can always say that he he speaks from his person mm-hmm. in the incarnation. And um, uh, there are uh, times, I think, where we can distinguish that he's reflecting his human nature when he says, uh, for example, that uh, no one knows the time of his return. Only the Father knows. And that seems to reflect the limitations of his of his humanity. And then there are probably other places, but in general, we want to be cautious about um, sort of willy nilly saying, well, here he's speaking from his humanity, here he's speaking from his deity. Um, Mm. Lest we unintentionally end up dividing the two natures. So we want to say one, one person, two distinct natures, but uh, undivided, you know, inseparable. And here, you know, this is where the, you know, I was mentioning the creeds. uh, This is where the definition of Chalcedon uh, helps us. Uh, there's some uh, four uh, adjectives uh, that that we that Chalcedon um, uses. Uh, let's see here. Here we go. Uh, to be acknowledged, right? He, well, he says, according to the humanity, uh, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. And here are the adverbs: inconfusedly, immutably, indivisibly, inseparably. And uh, so this is the, the confession of the definition of or the, the, the Council of Chalcedon, uh, A.D. 451. And uh, probably nobody knows for sure when the Athanasian was written. I tend to think a little later in, in the 5th century. Some people push it all the way back to the 7th century. I don't know if that's uh, true. Nobody really knows. But um, uh, here, the definition of Chalcedon is very, very useful for getting our language right about the two natures. And again, these things are not uh, just for scholars. They're for uh, lay people. They're for for God's people. Um, So that's that's the value, one of the many values of the creeds and confessions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we we are all tri-covenantalists, which means we um, understand and, and believe in the covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. So the question bears asking, how does the covenant of redemption as a foundational covenant relate to both the covenant of grace and the covenant of works? 
a great question. And it, it is foundational, as you say, the, that the covenant of works that uh, God uh, made with Adam, into which God entered with Adam. Remember, Adam was made in righteousness and true holiness, that he might rightly know God as creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness, as we say in the Heidelberg Catechism. I was about to say, it sounds like a catechism I know. It is a catechism that you know, uh, that Adam was a uh, able to obey. He wasn't sinful. He wasn't corrupt. Mm -hmm. And uh, God promised him eternal uh, blessedness, uh, communion. Um, some of our theologians have said friendship, which I think is actually very good. When I, you know, when I first encountered that, I was sort of um, struck by that, and I didn't quite know what to make of it. And then I started seeing it again and again in some of our writers. Uh, Johannes Coxeus is a covenant theologian uh, who uses this uh, language, friendship. So w God offered us a permanent, immutable friendship and communion with himself, if we obeyed him and uh, and passed this test, well, that's the covenant of works. And all humanity was, I would say, biologically and uh, legally in Adam. Mm -hmm. um, if Adam had passed that test, we all would have passed that test with him and all entered into blessedness. And of course, we all know the sad outcome of that story. Yeah, the, he chose to listen to the serpent as opposed to listening uh, to the, uh, I would say, the son, listening to God, certainly, yep. and, um, made a covenant, if you will, with Satan to uh, disobey God, and he ate uh, from the uh, forbidden fruit, the uh, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and plunged himself and us uh, into corruption and death. Um, so that uh, covenant of works uh, that God made with Adam reflects the covenant, the conditional covenant that the Father and the Son made, that the Father gives a people to the, to the Son on condition of his obedience on their behalf. And he had to meet that condition, uh, which is why John 17 is, uh, is so important, mm -hmm. because uh, in John 17, uh, Jesus says, I have done, uh, you know, what what you gave me to do. In John 17, 4 says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished mm -hmm. work that you gave me to do. Um, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Mm. So you, uh, he, he's confessing here in this prayer that he has accomplished what was given him to do in this pre-temporal eternal covenant. And, you know, people might be tempted, well, you know, this could be talking about uh, what he was given at the beginning of his ministry. But immediately he turns to talk about eternity. Mm -hmm. right? Glorify me now in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That changes the terms of the discussion. Mm -hmm. You can't just flatten this out and say, well, this is all about redemptive history, when in fact uh, it isn't all about redemptive history. Uh, it, it's a it's about um, the the pre-temporal relation between the Father and the Son, and the same thing is true uh, with uh, the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is also embedded in, um, uh, in in the covenant of redemption. Here, I'm trying to get Psalm 110 in front of me. My my clever software synced up between the iPad and the phone. I lost my. <laughs> See now it's they're talking smart. to each other and they're changing. See now I'm losing. <laughs> <laughs> they're 
They had an agreement that you didn't know about beforehand. <laughs> exactly. Well, they're sitting right next to each other. I didn't know I could do this, actually. Uh, anyway, uh, Psalm 110, you have two figures there, Yahweh and Adon. And uh, Psalm 110, 1, uh, uh, the uh, Yahweh... And you can see that in your English text. If you look, you see that the your English Bible uses small caps. That's a typeface, um, I guess. And uh, so, this, in small caps, when you see Lord, that is that means that stands for Yahweh. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's how we normally pronounce that. Um, nobody knows for sure how it's pronounced because the vowels aren't there, but it's it's close enough. And uh, it says, Yahweh says to Adon, it's a different word. And you'll notice that your typeface is different there. Capital L, lowercase O-R-D, uh, signaling a different Hebrew word. So Yahweh says to Adon, well, what does Yahweh say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And um, then you see uh, uh, Yahweh says, you know, uh, Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Well, that's verse two. So what, actually, if you read Psalm 110 carefully, one is parallel to five. And you see here, uh, Adon is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So Yahweh says, uh, you know, do this. Adon says, I will do it. Verse two, Yahweh says, I'm going to send forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse six, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Right? This is the accomplishment of redemption. And then well, what about the people? Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. And uh, you see at the end, uh, I think, echoes of that. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And the only verse that doesn't have a parallel is verse 4. And uh, the New Testament cites Psalm 110. According to Professor Estelle, it's not the most frequently quoted psalm, uh, but it is one of the most frequently quoted mm -hmm. psalms in the New Testament, very prominently. It cites Psalm 110.1, and it cites Psalm 110.4, particularly in Hebrews. Uh, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. This is Yahweh speaking to Adon. And um, that, and so that's the center of Psalm 110 because it doesn't have a parallel. Mm -hmm. One that, That's the part that stands out. So what you see here is a dialogue between two eternal figures, right? one Yahweh, one Adon. Um, Yahweh says, do X. Adon says, I will do X. And then in the, as you go through the Psalm, Yahweh or Adon has done all these things and he's been given a people and then he's now recognized in verse 4 um, that uh, Yahweh has sworn, he's covenanted, and will not change his mind. And so our salvation, uh, our redemption, this is the covenant of grace, is grounded in this eternal uh, relation between the two uh, persons, these two persons of the Trinity, and implicitly the third, and uh, the, the performing of certain things, the accomplishment of those things, and the... the you know, all made certain by this um, covenant, right? That's what this is in verse 4, a covenant, and it's a covenant of our redemption in the Son. So both mm -hmm. the covenants of works and the covenant, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, they're both grounded in this pre-temporal eternal covenant. And Hebrews 
reflects on this at considerable length. It's been oh, argued yeah. oh, yeah. that Hebrews is really a sermon on Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. Hebrews quotes a lot of other passages, but no passage in the Old Testament is more central to the book of Hebrews than Psalm 110, so that, and covenant is very central to Hebrews. Um, Gerhardus Voss wrote a little commentary, a little book on mm-hmm. uh, Hebrews called Hebrews Epistle of the Diatheke, at least that mm-hmm. was the original article, Epistle of the Covenant. And um, and so people who say, well, I don't know anything about covenant theology in the New Testament, I say, well, then you, clearly you haven't been paying attention to the book of Hebrews. <laughs> no. <laughs> because it's all about the covenant. Yeah. And uh, w- what covenant? Well, ultimately, you know, the covenants of redemption from all eternity and the covenant of grace as as that uh, breaks into history and um, particularly in the incarnation of, of Christ. Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either $15 or $20 a month, or a single donation, you can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and, and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be, as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. Hmm. Yeah. So following up on this and I'll ask the second part of this question because you've been talking about scripture um so where do we find we, we talked about biblical support where do we find you've talked about credible credo but where do we find confessional support for the covenant redemption attached to this is as I'm sure you've heard and read in literature and our listeners might question or, or know people who ask the same question is this just a doctrine that was made up in the 16th century by some reformers and um, we can, we can, it's not really all that, uh, all that important to be reformed and be tri-covenantalist or see the covenant redemption in scripture. Well, that's the, the way things were sort of put to me once upon a time, way back in the, in the eighties. Uh, but I don't think that's true. Uh, so our reformed theologians found this uh, very early in um, the history of our theology, going all the, all the way back to the 1520s and then becoming more and more explicit. Uh, for example, you know, one of my favorite places to point people is Caspar Olivianus's little uh, catechism, Firm Foundation, mm-hmm. which basically begins, published it in 1567 in German. Mm-hmm. Now it's in English. And again, this is one of the things we hope to get back into print. We've been working on this. Um, we haven't succeeded yet, but we're working on it. Uh, it turns out getting things into print is a lot more expensive than. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute, you want us to pay you to do this? Um, so we haven't figured out how we're going to do that yet. But um, he he begins with the covenant of redemption. He doesn't call it that, but that's that's what he's doing. So in the confessions, uh, you see uh, uh, allusions to reflection on these uh, ideas. So, as we said in the article in Covenant Justification and Pastoral Ministry, the Reformed Confessions, the earlier Reformed Confessions, didn't present a detailed 
covenant theology in, in formal terms, but shared many of the assumptions exploited, made use of, by the more mature covenant theology, including the, the uh, basic idea behind the covenant of works and the covenant of redemption, because these are the two things that people say. Well, the covenant of works is you know, not in uh, all of the confessions. It's only in the, the um, uh, Westminster standards. And, and that's not quite true. Yeah. The uh, Belgic confession refers to the commandment of life, mm-hmm. at least an allusion to the similar, to, to the same kinds of ideas of the Belgic confession uh, explicitly addresses, of course, the covenant of grace and uh, the term covenant occurs in, in the context of the explanation of the sacraments. Um, and so there's covenant connection to the, to baptism and covenant connection to uh, the Lord's supper. Um, and you see covenant in, in, for example, in the cans of Dort relative uh, to the supper or to a baptism. But uh, now we go on to say bearing in mind the theological context in which the confession was written, we should not miss the import, the significance, for covenant theology of terms such as mediator and high priest. Mm-hmm. So, when, according to the Belgic Confession, did Jesus become our high priest and mediator? Well, according to Belgic Confession 26, the Father has constituted the Son as mediator between himself and us. And the confession regards this constituting as eternal, interpersonal, legal, and covenantal. And we could go to uh, other places as well. Um, Again, the formal covenant theology of the Heidelberg Catechism is rudimentary. The Mm -hmm. terms testament and covenant occur, right? Bund in German and foidus in Latin, those are covenant terms. And they occur in, again, typically in conjunction with the sacraments. But the Heidelberg Catechism assumed, I think, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace or the works-grace scheme taught. Ursinus very explicitly taught it, so did mm-hmm. So again, we should read the Catechism's references to Christ as mediator, Heidelberg 15, Heidelberg 18, as implying the pactum salutis or the covenant of redemption. And this is particularly true regarding the Catechism's reference to Christ's office as high priest in Heidelberg 31. And there you see teaching, or it teaches the foreordination of Christ as the revealer of God's secret counsel and will concerning our redemption, our only high priest. And so this language, I think, suggests the same conceptual framework that you see worked out in more detail in the Pactum Salutis in Orthodox Reformed theology. Uh, the Westminster Divines are uh, explicit. Um, Canons of Dort, you see, I think, in uh, uh, two, two, or, let's see, well, one seven um, relative to election, God has elected a certain number of persons to salvation in Christ. Mm-hmm. Christ is he whom from eternity God constituted uh, mediator and head of all the elect and uh, the ground of salvation. And that's the same language that you see in the Orthodox teaching, the Pactum Salutis. God, we we confess, has decreed to give them, that is the elect, to Christ, to be saved by him, and effectually to call and draw them 
we go on to say, by his word and spirit. And then Canons of Dort 2 2, God from his infinite mercy uh, gives his only begotten son as our sponsor, our surety. Right? That's the language of the covenant of redemption. And, uh, and, and it's in the Westminster Divines uh, implicitly in 8 1, God in his eternal purpose. Uh, we go on to say, chose and ordained Christ, again, to be the mediator between God and man, whom, right, to whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So that's the essence of the Pactum Salutis. So yeah, it's embedded in our confessions to a greater or lesser degree. It's clearer, you see, in, in the Dort, right? It's the, you know, Pactum Salutis language is right there in, in Dort, and then even more, I think, detailed and explicit in the Westminster Standards. So added to this and to try to round out for, for my last question before Nick's last question, and you've hinted at this, and, and I think it'd be helpful to um, our listeners to, to not go through all of them, but to, to talk about how, in general, the covenant redemption's either been misunderstood or kind of like left alone or not thought about or thought it was not reformed or anything. So um, maybe both historically and maybe modern times too, how have we either misunderstood the covenant redemption or said, no, that is not a reformed doctrine, and we, we left it off the table? Well, what I w was told or what I heard, and I don't remember, I don't remember exactly where it was, but uh, I had the pretty clear impression that the Pactum Salutis back in the 80s again, um, the early 80s, mid-80s, was a, a sort of exotic, speculative doctrine. You know, um, we were we were told about, uh, um, you know, the, the logical order of the decree, superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we're we're not going to talk about that because again that's speculative. We want to ground everything, you know, uh, very clearly in Scripture. We won't, we don't want to be working with inferences this way, and um, and so we, you know, again it was left sort of vague and and um, somewhat uh, undefined. At least in my mind, again, this is probably more my fault than my teacher's fault. And um, but I did get the clear impression from the literature and from things that were said and things that were not said that the uh, covenant of redemption is just sort of, um, you know, off the table. We're, you know, we're mostly it was just ignored. And so I I had this idea that it was some sort of exotic Gnostic secret, and I really didn't even know you know exactly where to find it. And um, when I was working on Olivianus translating, you know, De Substantia on the substance of the covenant of grace between God and the elect, and um, working on other of his texts, I was beginning to see what I, you know, sort of pieced together was the covenant of redemption, and uh, thought, well, that's interesting. And then Steve Baugh started pestering me <laughs> back in the early 90s, and saying, you know, well, tell me about the covenant of redemption. And I, you know, well, what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> forced me to to look into this and to do to do some reading and then over the years the picture you know got clearer and uh, he and I both and, and he was already headed in this direction uh, he was seeing it in Ephesians and and in other places and uh, he sort of pushed me to work on this and so I started reading on it a little more and and I became I, I realized and we taught a course together on covenant theology and I realized no this is a real thing it really is in scripture. It really is uh, in our tradition. 
and uh, it's implied in in the confessions it, it you know as i say the language that we use it has to be read against the background of what the writers were doing and saying and um and that we just lost that in the early 20th century people just quit talking about it because they they lost confidence in it you you see it in, in gerhardus voss uh, he was teaching it and it's in his uh, reformed dogmatics of course yeah. until it came out in english published by logos and lexham uh, it uh, wasn't available to uh, very many people. Um, he, he, I, I found it in G.H. Kirsten's Dogmatics um, <laughs> in the mid-20th century um, and and in a few other places, but in uh, lots of, uh, and Burkhoff did it, uh, but in a lot of other writers, it, it was either ignored or it was consciously rejected. Um, in the for a long time, the only English language popular introduction to covenant theology was Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants. Yep. He, he rejected uh, both the covenant of works and the covenant of redemption. And um, Mr. Murray was not a fan of the covenant of redemption, and he was at least uncomfortable with the language covenant of works. And mm -hmm. he to talk about the covenant of creation. And so there were important influences in confessional and conservative reformed theology in the 20th century that were, were really uh, either you know uncomfortable with it or, or disagreed with it uh, and um, and I know uh, my teacher Bob Strimple was opposed to the idea of the covenant of redemption um, you know, pre-temporal covenant of redemption so we didn't get it um, uh, that I'm, I'm confident of that um, so I I think the only place I might have heard it was from Meredith Klein he was teaching. And when I had Bob Strimple, now he later came to teach the Covenant of Works, but he wasn't teaching it when I had it in the early 80s. But so I, I got it from Meredith. Uh, he taught us the Covenant of Works, and he uh, taught us a little bit about the Covenant of Redemption, not at not at great length. So lots of writers, uh, you know, rejected it, uh, uh, pushed back against it. And so it, it was not in good shape. Uh, uh, when David and I did this article, it was one of the first things that had been done for a long time. Now, since that time, there's a lot of literature on it. Uh, John Fesco has written yep. two mm -hmm. books, published yeah. two books on the Covenant of Redemption. And um, I interviewed him uh, back on the Office Hours podcast. Mm -hmm. did a couple mm -hmm. of interviews with him on those. If the listener cares to look those up, uh, you can find them on the Westminster website on wscal.edu uh, slash office hours, or you can find them on the Heidel blog or find links to them at heidelblog.net slash office hours. Um, Bart obviously was not a big fan of the covenant of of um, works, hated the covenant of works, rejected it, and uh, um, he rejected uh, the covenant of redemption as unbiblical, and he was probably the most influential Reformed theology, Reformed theologian of the 20th century. I, I didn't say best. I didn't say most orthodox. I just said <laughs> influential. most influential. Yeah, right. Those are different categories. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, before my last question, if I may, kind of like a brief recap definition of what this is, what covenant of redemption is. And what I'm hearing is it's covenant of redemption is based on eternal, perfect relationship and love because it's with the triune Godhead and God and, and God is omniscient and he can't lie and he can't break promises. And how much more can he not do those things within himself? And that is why. Christianity is not deism. That's right. I mean, the 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 persons of the Trinity 
are engaged with each other, and uh, theologians have for um, you know many many centuries talked about perichoresis. The and this is a an, kind of a funny word to use in this context, but it, uh, the interpenetration or the eternal personal relations between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you could say that uh, there was a period here where people sort of got excited about perichoresis and maybe be, maybe made more of it than they should um, do, but um, it, it is an important idea, and it, it tells us that uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are persons, mm-hmm. and they have a relationship. Now, we don't want to go in the direction of the social Trinitarians mm-hmm. and reduce the union um, of the the oneness of the Trinity to a relationship. Now that's, um, I think that tends to tritheism and and that would be heresy. Don't want to do that. Uh, But we do want to recognize that uh, our one God is one in three distinct persons. And these three distinct persons uh, have eternal relations uh, between themselves and the covenant uh, that we talk about this pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption uh, that is a reflection of that relationship. That the, as you say, uh, God the Trinity loved us who believe, right? And we believe because He loved us and because He called us and gave us new life and true faith. But He loved His elect from all eternity in Christ. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on them because of that love. And so we shouldn't think of this as a merely legal thing, right? Because it's a um, as I say, the, the covenant of redemption is a covenant of works for the Son. He has to perform certain things, uh, but it's a covenant of grace for us. And so for us, it's an expression of divine love uh, by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Perfect. Yeah, love existed eternally, even before sin. And so we know that uh, knowing, going to my last question, knowing that Jesus achieved the covenant of works to live for us as we are heirs of him and um, by imputation of his righteousness, justification uh, for those struggling with assurance in the perfect atoning work of Jesus Christ, how, why, how might we, the covenant of redemption help with assurance? I think it helps when we uh, meditate on the fact that uh, Jesus came to do, you know, what he promised his father he would do, and that the father has given us to him as a gift. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson was in town uh, not long ago, and Uh he preached uh, at the Escondido URC, and in the evening service, um, he described us as God's love gift, the father's love gift to the son. And uh, I thought that was a marvelous thing. And I um, actually used that in the Heidelcast uh, in order uh, to encourage people mm-hmm. to, to trust and to know that they've been loved from all eternity in Christ and given by the Father to the Son. And, uh, you know, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Mm-hmm. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Why? Well, because we've been given by the Father to the Son, and the Father and the Son are one. And Satan did his best and failed. Thought he thought he won by you know, arranging Jesus' murder, but all he did was seal our redemption. Uh, we, we <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, Augustine called it 
uh, a mousetrap. Yeah. Called the cross a mousetrap, which is a fascinating image. And, um, and so it was, and Jesus was raised on the third day. And so uh, he was vindicated and uh, he was raised, as scripture says, for our justification. Therefore, we can uh, be confident, we can be assured, because redemption wasn't just attempted, it wasn't just offered, it was actually, as Mike Horton said so many years ago in his first book that he wrote when he was, what, 14 or 15, <laughs> yeah. uh, mission accomplished. Yeah, and I've always liked that title, yeah. right? not mission attempted, but mission accomplished. It is finished. It is finished. He, he actually did what he set out to do. He, he did what he promised he would do. He kept his promise, and the Father kept his promise to the Son. And uh, we can always rely on God's promises. God doesn't lie. He doesn't change. He's immutable. And he's not one thing one day and another thing another day. He is what he is always from all eternity. And, um, and so when he says he loves us, we can rest in that. We can trust that, and we have to. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's helpful. Knowing God can't lie. If God lied, he wouldn't be God anymore. Yeah, and he covenanted if he were to lie or to fail in the covenant obligations, may he be um, severed like the halves were with Abraham or yeah. when he's promising to to Christ. But yeah, Dr. Clark, thank you so much for, for coming on, for talking to us about the covenant redemption, for uh, explaining this to our listeners in a way that's easier to digest, but also doesn't kind of shy away from the from the big stuff and from, from the large um, kind of heavy doctrines that I think people think, well, redemption, like you said, it's a little esoteric. It's not really for me. It's not really for kind of regular everyday Christians, but it, it really is for everyday Christians. Um, but yeah, thank you. And to uh, to plug your own stuff. So where can people find mm -hmm. you? Where can people find your website or what you do? All, all that stuff. So plug all things, Dr. Clark. <laughs> okay, well, just go to heidelblog.net, heidelblog.net, or you can even do heidelblog.org now. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we haven't figured out uh, yet to get the other one, but um, uh, so heidelblog.net, and um, there you you can see the Heidelcast, heidelblog.net slash Heidelcast. We're on all the podcast platforms, uh, so you can look us up anywhere. Apple, you know, uh, Apple Podcasts. Um, what are the other big platforms? Spotify. Spotify. Google, on yeah. Spotify, Google, all of them. So you could just, if, if you just uh, search, I was going to say Google, but I don't like Google. But anyway, <laughs> if you just search for Heidelcast, yeah, you will easily find us. And then hit subscribe and, and like and all that stuff. And uh, we're doing, uh, so uh, the weekly uh, episodes, the weekly podcast is uh, we're going through Romans. Mm -hmm. and, um we're in Romans four. Uh, I just did one yesterday. It actually turned into a Q and a, so, mm -hmm. but uh, we're, 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 um, I don't know, eight. What's, I don't know how many episodes we're into now, but, uh, uh, and then uh, during the week, I am just, we do mini casts three days a week and uh, we're working through Jay Gresson Machen's Christianity and liberalism. This is the hundredth yeah. anniversary of yeah. that. So I'm just reading uh, highlights from Machen's, and those are like two, three, maybe five minute uh, episodes uh, just to um, give you a little something to think about during the day. Hmm. Oh, awesome. awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a pleasure talking about this and it's, it's uh it's weird being an alum alumnus of, uh, of Westminster and now talking to former professors, but yeah, I hope people 
learn more and and uh and and see their assurance and the redemption and the covenant redemption the agreement between the father son um and implicitly the spirit like you said but yeah thank you so much it's been a pleasure having you on you bet great to talk to you guys thanks for your good work of course Hope you enjoyed today's episode in our season six introduction to Reformed theology, where all of our guests come from Westminster Seminary, California, either current faculty or alumni who come from and graduated from Westminster and are serving institutions in churches and academies in the U.S. and all across the world. When we talk about Reformed theology through the lens of our confessional tradition, Westminster, the Heidelberg, Belgic, and the Cans of Door. I myself I'm a graduate of Westminster. I'm heavily influenced, obviously, by the institution and love to share this information with those who don't know this tradition as well. Yeah, and myself as a layperson, theologically interested in in Reformed theology, this has been extremely helpful this season and then the previous seasons, the last few years in the book clubs, but particularly the, the focus of this season whether you're a layperson or not, uh, having all the guests come from Westminster Seminary, California, has been helpful, and you'll get an understanding of why that seminary has been so influential to obviously Peter, but myself, and most especially uh, my pastor at my church is a Westminster Seminary, California graduate. Yeah, so if you guys want to find us, one of the easiest ways of helping us out is to find us on Apple or Spotify, whatever podcast catcher, but especially those two, rate and review us. And if you can share us, share an episode, share a season with your friend, that's, that's usually how we how we uh, build our, our crowd. 